Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, the series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrant. And yes, once again, it's the customary apology for the long absence between uh, innings on these podcast episodes. Uh, I won't bore you with the usual, there's a lot happening. There's always a lot happening. But um, in my particular case, uh, in regards to the film, which is sort of what started this journey, uh, there are things happening. Uh, I have a distributor who I'm going to well, probably have some sort of a formal announcement on Facebook um, but we've got a few things in the the mix happening sales-wise, which I'm hoping to announce, if not at the end of uh, this month, uh, the end of next month, and that will give me some insight into whether uh, I can start teasing you with some dates for when the documentary film will be available. I have also just been enjoying watching rugby. You know, a lot of things happening, but obviously the rugby championship being hosted in Queensland has played out in the last few weeks. And hasn't it been great as a Wallaby supporter, seeing us win three in a row? Uh, first time it's happened since 2017. So that has been quite special and, and, and to, to win two games against the Springboks, the world champions no less, has been fantastic. And while I certainly don't want to dampen the mood by uh, continually looking at ways in which the game has been struggling, uh, I also don't want to think that we've completely turned things around. And of course, I've got further episodes and, and the documentary which is still going to keep exploring that. However, for now, let's enjoy the Wallabies winning and Australian rugby getting a bit of glory. There came a point in this journey when I was making the documentary where I was very interested in getting perspectives from outside of Australia. Uh, I've spoken to uh, Murray Mexted, former All Black, when he was in Sydney, and um, I've spoken to a couple other people from uh, the UK who I, I won't tell you who they are because I want to sort of leave that as a bit of a um, surprise. Uh, it'll come out in the in the documentary, but one person or one country that I had omitted, not uh, through any intention to, was South Africa, and it struck me in the last year that you know South Africa have really um, come back into favour as a team. They're certainly uh, getting a lot of attention, the good and bad, depending on what your perspective is about the way in which they're playing. But they are the reigning world champions. Uh, they just beat the Lions. And uh, they're now uh, trying to defend their title uh, week in, week out against teams that are trying to peg them down. So I thought it would be very interesting to hear from a South African perspective on what exactly the Springboks journey has been, not just in recent years, but again, over the last 20 to 30 years, much like the Wallabies, I think there's been a lot of highs and lows in South African rugby. Some of it we've seen. Uh, through the performance of the Springboks, much of which we don't see, uh, given the fact that it is a country on the other side of the world uh, with its own you know, political and, and social dynamics. And you know, as a rugby nation and a powerhouse rugby nation, I've always found it interesting to see what makes that place tick, but also understand a bit more about what has made South African rugby so dominant, but then by the same token, in the instances in which they've struggled... What have been those factors? Are there any lessons to be learned for Australia through this process? To help me do this, I reached out to someone who is part of the Rugby Bits team. They're a, a collective of rugby 
fans and writers from South Africa. Uh, his name is Tala Masutu, and uh, he was very happy to sit down and, and have a chat with me. So, yeah, look, Tala, thanks for joining me once again, and I appreciate, as, as is the, the, the nature of the, the world we live in now, you can kind of reach out to a lot of people on, on any sort of forum, social media, Facebook. And um, I think I saw you on Twitter because I just noticed you were either um, interacting with comments that I'd been uh, either putting up there or talking to, but also then looking at um, Rugby Bits, which is, uh, I assume, a website or a, or a collective. Um, could, could you, just, I guess, start by telling me a bit more about Rugby Bits? Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Matt, for inviting me. And yeah, I appreciate just being on this platform. Um, it's, <clears throat> yes, while myself and Rugby Bits, obviously our focus is more South African rugby, it's good to also just re reach out to our sort of rugby brothers and sisters, um, you know, in Australia and, and all around the world as well. So that's great. Um, so yeah, Rugby Bits actually started relatively recently. Um, it's between myself um Kutle Sonseki, Chad Wright, and um, Sean Lilford as well. So it's just four people that, you know, we've interacted with each other on Twitter for probably a few years now. And, yeah, we just decided let's just start something just to produce some, you know, good content about rugby um, here and around the world. Um, yeah, I think with might be a little bit controversial to say, but, you know, there's definitely obviously some great, like, South African rugby journalists, but we found that, there is a small minority that's quite loud that just takes away sort of the conversation of rugby here and just makes it such a, 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 a corrosive and divisive thing. So we want to sort of just get people around sort of like, you know, the church of rugby, if, if, so to speak, and, and get people just talking about the game. Not that we're always positive. And of course, the, the last three weeks for South African fans have been great, but at the very least, just, you know, having sort of good, intelligent conversations about the game and just matching sort of not being as serious as a journalist would be, but just giving a perspective that sort of an armchair fan would have and just mixing, you know, a brand of, we hope, a bit of humor and, and all that sort of stuff as well. So, yeah, we have our website, um, rugbybits.com. So you can follow us there. You can follow our, uh, our page on rugbybits as well. And, yeah, we have a... A, a Twitter space at the moment um, every Monday evening at six o'clock South African time, where we discuss the previous week's games um, for the Springboks and for the South African teams in the United Rugby Championship and other games as well. And we're hopefully going to be starting our podcast sooner rather than later. We're just trying to sort of arrange final details about that and organizing schedules, but hopefully we'll have a a podcast that comes on once a week just discussing sort of the rugby news so yeah no we we, we hope to be some uh, a place for rugby fans that want you know a bit of analysis a bit of sort of you know people thinking about the game and just a, a deeper than surface level and obviously having the platform of going a bit wider than go than you know the 280 characters that twitter provides and yeah just hopefully you find our content you know you know, like knowledge, like, you know, getting something from it in terms of knowledge, but also hopefully a little bit um, entertaining as well. So yeah, we'd love to have more subscribers and more people just following our page and, 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 and reading our articles. Um, the one article I have written now, I'm busy with another one. The one article I wrote about was sort of a second perspective on just how, you know, the Wallabies 
are going and, and, and growing. And I think it was written before the Wallabies test. So I think there's some things that I look a bit foolish on just think, just saying that, you know, we're expecting the Springboks to win and all that sort of stuff. But it was, I, I'm glad though that the, some of the things that I wrote, I'm a bit relieved I did because I was, I was of the feeling that the Wallabies were on the right track and the New Zealand results sort of distorted, you know, where they are sort of on their sort of path to, to try and get back to the top of rugby. So at least that's something that people can read from myself. But yeah, there's a lot of content, mostly, you know, South African specific, but we do, you know, use sort of, especially when we play against particular teams and, and write about that as well. So I think even for Australian rugby fans, there'll be something for them as well. I thought actually, man, I read it and I, I didn't actually think there was anything too outrageously um, parochial or one-eyed about it. I thought what you what you did touch upon, and I thought you were quite even even-handed about um, the relative strengths at the moment or at the time of the all of his in the box, but was just the the stark record of the box in Australia in the last twenty mm. to thirty years. I mean, that's I think most teams probably have a a, poor, a poorer record away from home. But yeah, just how very rarely they had one um, in Australia um, over over time, and of course, you know that 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 sort of uh, trend is, is, has been maintained in the last two two weeks, albeit very closely in, in game one at least. I think it's it's a bit difficult to remember, um, especially with where South African rugby was and Australian rugby was three weeks ago. It's 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 a bit. I think from the South African perspective, it was easy to forget that you know. Going to Australia is tough, and it's something that we've really, we've we've really you know been able to win matches in, in Australia against Australian teams, and the, the the I think it's four times that we've won since 1996. Those teams have been close to our best teams, or it's been when the Australians have been at their absolute worst. And there was, I thought at least at the time of writing the article, there was sort of an angle that okay, this is probably one of our better teams in the last 20 years. This seems like an Australian team that's a little bit naive. I wouldn't say it's the worst team at all, but it, it is a team that you, you know, on the right day, you could probably, you know, that they can catch you out, but you, you should be able to beat sort of nine times out of 10. But yeah, I think what happened, I think in the, in the two matches was that the Wallabies really just cleaned up a lot of the errors, like the clear errors that they gave, that they made against the All Blacks. And you know, when you're looking at back at those All Black games, especially, you know, of the 120 odd points that the All Blacks scored, I think 90% of those points were directly from Australian mistakes. And just cleaning those mistakes up makes, makes the Wallabies a new team and it just brings them up like so many levels. And of course, bringing back the experienced players as well is a big factor. So, yeah, I think it, it, it just shows that the, the margins, I think, in world rugby are so small now. It's I don't think we'll have a decade of dominance like the All Blacks had in the 2010s. I think most teams will be probably, you know, it seems like the All Blacks are going through a run right now, to be fair. But most teams, I think, will have like a 60, 70 percent um, or 50 to 70 percent win record. Um, against each other in that sort of tier one um, group. So it's great, I think, for rugby in general that the Australians were able to bounce back from the Bledisloe loss and and, and were able to put in um, three wins on the trot now. I just feel like defensively, oh, sorry, in, in an attacking sense, mm. the All Blacks expose what we what Australia is trying to be. And I don't think the Springboks on this occasion um, 
tested our frailties other than I think exposing our vulnerabilities at probably the back three because I think our fullback is probably one of our, our weakest areas in terms of depth of position. Mm. Um, and, you know, it almost it almost paid off. But, yes, it, we, we live in unusual times because, you know, for the Springboks, you know, what I what I initially thought when they came out this year was I thought it, it sort of reminded me of what the Wallabies were like in 1999 when we won a World Cup, but there were still a lot of question marks as to whether the team was a world champion team because we'd been... Yeah. Absolutely smashed two years prior. Um, I think you know, Springboks had their biggest defeat against us in Pretoria, and you know that whole team pretty much had to rebuild. And it was more or less the same team, but then you know there, there were a lot of question marks. I think we lost the first game against the All Blacks in 2000, then we managed to win the return, and you know held on. And, and then you know the, the 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 Lions series, and 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 it was a good period, but it was a, a similar type of pressure. Um, bouncing off a, of a World Cup win. Yeah, I think, and I'm actually busy writing an article about that. It's, you know, South Africa seems to do it backwards um, with with how they win their Rugby World Cups. Usually, I think with most teams, I guess, it's, it's, except for the Wallabies, like you mentioned now, usually a team has a period of dominance before they win the World Cup. And then the World Cup's almost like the, the, the crowning moment for that particular you know, generation of players. Whereas with the Springboks, especially with 2007 and 2019, it's usually a surprise win that comes basically out of nowhere where the team isn't really, or maybe in the, yeah, I don't think would be sort of in that top two or three sort of favorites um, pre, pre-tournament. And, you know, somehow, you know, especially in the knockout games, they're able to pull off, you know, three great performances in a row. You know, some things sometimes go go their way, but usually obviously based on a strong forward pack and, you know, a competent backline and they're able to to win, you know, knockout rugby. And I think South African rugby is much more, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more suited to knockout rugby than, you know, traditional you know, Australian or New Zealand rugby because risks are limited. It's based on the forwards. It's based on the set piece. Um, we usually have a fly half or some, you know, place kicker that can kick 80 plus percent. And, you know, it's about not making, it's about making the least mistakes and the Springboks are really good at that when they're playing at their best. So now we, I think we have this period now, this year where we've been trying to sort of validate that, you know, that world championship and being the number one team. And partly, I think, during the British and Irish Lions series, we did validate that, um, you know, especially when you consider the circumstances of, you know, having not having played Test Rugby in over a year and all the preparations and the COVID risks and all that sort of stuff, you know, I think that British and Irish Lions series win, I think when there's a bit of time that, that elapses, will be looked back as one of the best achievements, I think, in South African rugby modern history. Um, it would have been better though to back that up with at least, hopefully, at least a win or two wins out of um, four um, from the from these test matches against the Wallabies and the All Blacks. But I guess there is also perspective with that about, like you mentioned, sort of the unprecedented times that we're in. But also, you know, it's rare. I don't think it's ever happened that we've played New Zealand Australia four weeks in a row away. And it's just, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do. But I think, and maybe my, my sort of um, concern as a Springbok fan is I thought this team was 
maybe different in the sense that not not yeah i think it's i'm trying to sort of figure it out myself i i i put maybe a high a high standard on this team thinking that this team would be sort of at or near the top of world rugby that you know expecting two wins out of four from those four tests would be at least the minimum requirement and and being able to 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 be to be able to rest comfortably in the fact that yes we're playing away and yes it's four tests but we have the depth and the strength in our in our team to be able to at least win once out of you know once in two weeks against um both new zealand and australia but you know that hasn't happened so you just have to reassess, I guess, or yeah, I'm, I'm reassessing sort of the strength of the Springbok team that we've had and, and trying to see, you know, where, what's happening. But I mean, not all is not lost, of course. And I think there is just some adjustments that we're making. And I think a lot of effort and focus was put on the Lions series so much so that they, I think they, in some ways, I wouldn't say they underestimated the Wallabies, but I do think they didn't have the sufficient focus for them. Um, if I'm pretty honest, and uh, you can see that in their performance against All Blacks, which was a lot better. But yeah, it's now just made the Springboks sort of recede into a bit more of a even more conservative game plan and even more, uh, even less risk risk taking. And you know, there's a balance. I mean, of course, you want to make sure that you force the opponents to not play their game and to make mistakes, but you need to be able to take the opportunities that you know, that your opponents give you as well. So we need to just refine that balance, I think, hopefully by by by, by Saturday. Do you think the omission of a player like Chisholm Colby has been a bit of a, uh, you know, been a bit of a disadvantage? Yeah, I think it's definitely, it definitely doesn't help. Um, it does seem like, you know, I think before, if you asked me this before the series, I would have said that, yeah, look, losing Colby is not ideal. He's, been one of the best rugby players in the world. If you've seen his performances for Toulouse and for the Springboks in the Lions series, he basically scored the, the series winning try. But, you know, we have enough players that have, you know, the ability, if you give them the opportunity to score tries and to, and to, and to score um, from opportunities out of relative nothing. But it does seem like there is a major reliance on Colby just being Cheslin Colby in our game plan. You know, we, you know, I, the All Blacks on, Sun, on Saturday, for example, when they kicked to us, they had no concerns as to where they kicked it, who they kicked it to. You know, the chase, I think, almost regressed in some cases um, during the course of the game. And I think it was just that knowledge of, okay, there's no chairs in Colby that can hurt us, you know, with, with ball in hand. So there isn't really a risk for us just putting the ball back to the spring box and, and, and asking and, you know, giving them the opportunity to either run at us or to kick the ball back. So unless then the kicking game is, you know, close to 100% accurate, you know, that puts your team at a disadvantage if you don't want the ball and you don't you don't have the players to take the opportunities when there is a chance to take an opportunity. So, yeah, I think Chesson's, you know, the lack of Chesson Colby in the last three, four weeks has not helped at all. But I think the Springboks, my my sense is that the Springboks are too good of a team to sort of for, for everything to to fall apart just because of the lack of Colby and you know you can talk about Peter Steph to Toy as well. You know, yes, we we don't have three of probably the sort of top 23 players, but you know, I think we're much better than the performance that we've um had the past three weeks, and we should be at the very least, 
you know, making it a little bit harder for teams to beat us. I think my concern is, you know, this, the first test for the Australians and this test last, last Saturday for the All Blacks, both teams went near their best in beating us. I think the second test for the Australians, I think that was a, a, an amazing game that the Australians played. You know, they nullified all the Springbok strengths defensively. And then when they attacked, they were so accurate with, with tries. I think that second test was probably the best test in the Dave, Dave Rennie era. But, you know, the other two tests that we've lost now in the last three weeks, I don't think we even, yeah, we didn't put, we didn't put enough like pressure on a team to play close to their best in order to beat us. And that I think is the most frustrating thing about these losses. Look, the, the, it's the magic of Suncorp Stadium. There, there's a bit of a, <laughs> I think, a, an aura starting to build. And again, I'm, I'm never one for those. Although, if you could explain the Eden Park um, uh, <laughs> sort of street to me, that would be great. But but I, I, I feel that, yeah, there is, I don't know what it is. It's, you know, certainly Queensland in general seems to be a very, just it seems to be a rugby state. It is probably, I think, mm. where we can we sort of draw on something and, and players do seem to play play well there. Queenslanders, you know, are very rugby mad, um, pro- probably more so, I think, in, in terms of their the way the crowd get animated than perhaps some of the other um, states and places in Australia. So, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes Suncorp just has this sort of strange way of, of, of pulling out the best quality performances. But, yeah, I mean, everything kind of went right that night and I... Um, I'm someone who who tipped against the Wallabies in in both those matches, so you know eggs <laughs> on my face. Um, I, with that said, the minute Cooper came into the mix, I I, re, I started to backtrack and said, well, actually, it could be a lot closer because I felt that Cooper was going to try and do things that, um, yeah, in the same in the same way that Finn Russell had a bit of an impact in the British Light Lions series. It was yes, um, you know, he was going to come on and maybe maybe change the script and you know the South Africans been a while since they'd played against him in, in most um forms so so would they know what he did in the end Cooper didn't really he wasn't the old Cooper he was a he was a new and improved sort of ice man who was distributing and 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 just kicking <laughs> straight mm. so you know again the, the beauty of rugby the script changes again but no I certainly um I did not think that we'd win two in a row and I while I'm excited and I certainly don't know what going to be the party pooper you know, I still believe that there are some key areas, more more so with our rugby system in Australia, that has to be addressed mm-hmm. if we're if we're to sort of if we're to see sort of consistent success that we had. And I guess that brings me on to my point: is I've sort of made my podcast and the, the film that I'm making that the whole point has been more looking at the long term view of Australian rugby, you know, analysing yeah. the last you know last two decades, but even going back further when we were sort of we kind of rose as a bit of a power and 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 started to get parity with the all blacks um but then sort of looking at that and i think you know in that period i've sort of obviously looked at other countries and i've spoken to a few people from from english rugby um you know spoke to murray mexted very briefly when he was in australia and you know you get a bit of an insight about new zealand um south africa is a glaring admission and for for a country Mm -hmm. there's you know arguably one of the powerhouses of rugby in the world um it was one of those things that and I just happened to not have any South Africans or there were no Springboks living in Australia that I could interview. So it was sort of not, not, not by um, any intention. But, you know, I look at South Africa from a, an outsider's view and it does seem as though it's also had a bit of a roller coaster over the years and, you know, even mm-hmm. recent years. And so I guess sort of, yeah, looking more broadly, you know, you, you sort of say, no, no one's 
hitting the panic button now. It's obviously hasn't been a great few weeks, but can you know, as a team, it's still pretty strong, and there's no reason why this team can't keep building and and defend in France. Um, mm. But overall, what's your sort of what's your take on 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 the, on the journey that I suppose South African rugby has taken in the last sort of you know twenty to thirty years? Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. Um, look, I think I was born in 1993, so I mean, South Africa's reintroduction into rugby almost mirrors sort of my life. Yeah, you can put it like that as well. So, of course, we were you know banned from rugby because of apartheid, and then you know the country united and um, were able to be reintroduced into sort of the the <laughs> the rest of the world in many respects, um, and I think. You know, initially with the when when you know with winning the 1995 Rugby World Cup, I think that was at least a good step into, you know, I think everyone's watched Invictus, and I mm. I think obviously there's some things that maybe are sort of um, a director's sort of creative will, but it did I think make uh, bring uh, like bring rugby sort of together in in the in the sense that it did sort of give some sort of vision of what the most ideal situation could be, you know, you know, like black and white South Africans coming together and loving the sport. So my background, for example, is that I'm from the Eastern Cape in South Africa, and that is a basically a hotbed of talent in, in, in South African rugby, where a lot of yep. the black Springbok rugby players are from, such as Sia Kulisi, Makazole uh, Mapimpi, Lukanya Am. Lukanya Am probably lives about five, ten minutes from where I grew up. Um, for example, right. so it's 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 a it's a region that has loved rugby from the start, and I think there's always been a bit of almost a civil war in South Africa between sort of like you know black and white South Africans as to you know who does this game belong to, and you know I th- I'm think I'm I'm hoping and I'm, I'm I'm seeing sort of signs of like the game sort of coming together in some respects of you know mm. it not being a thing of like you know it sort of oscillates between sort of like you know, different racial groups and and, and and whoever, different power structures or different regions. But, you know, there is sort of a united or, or you know, beginning of unification of seeing the, the vision of, you know, what, if we're, if we have as many, you know, if, if we can make sure that as many people in South Africa are interested in this game and love this game, then it will only benefit the Springboks. Yeah. So there's, and I, you know, there is still a lot of challenges, I think, because, we still haven't, I think, tapped sort of even the beginning of sort of the resources that we can get from sort of from the from the non-traditional sort of rugby hotbeds in South Africa. So yeah. I think South Africa's track well, South Africa's sort of like is a lot like New Zealand in the sense that you know rugby is one of our main sports. It's probably not as much, it's pretty close, but it's not as much of a religion as it is in New Zealand, where I think it's basically the only sport, but Mm -hmm. there is sort of healthy competition from especially football um, or soccer um, as well, um, especially just it being a much more accessible sport than rugby is. So rugby in South Africa is, I think, the the in terms of the growth and the development, it relies a lot on its on the schools and the high school structures. And the the good thing is that the high schools, you know, the, the former white sort of dominated schools in South Africa, a lot of them still have amazing rugby structures. So a lot of the players will come from those schools. A lot of the coaches will also come from those schools as well. So, you know, it will, I think that's why South African rugby will always produce great rugby players and almost export rugby players to other countries as well. We'll always have 
almost an excess of talent. So yeah. that's never the problem. It's just about getting everyone together. But there's still not necessarily enough rugby players that are grown and developed from, you know, traditionally black African schools or traditionally colored schools or schools from, um, you know, informal settlements or, or rural areas. And, you know, that's where the issue becomes of, you know, how are we going, you know, it's almost sheer luck that Siakulisi was able to rise up the rugby ranks. It's almost sheer luck that Lukanyo Ama and Makazola Mapimpi and Ches and Colby even were able to get through the ranks of rugby because to a lesser extent with Sia because he was identified and then was able to go to these sort of traditional white schools. But with Mapimpi Am and Colby, they didn't go to the traditional sort of like rugby powerhouse schools. And they weren't, you know, identified by sort of the 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 super rugby franchises, you know, from when they were like 16. So they had to sort of take a, a longer path to sort of getting to the top of the rugby world. So the question is, I think for South African rugby and for its future is how do we make sure that we see and identify more of those um, more of those talents um, to to put them through the rugby system and we'll have to see I think there's some good signs that things are happening in the right way you know appointing Rassi Rasmus as our director of rugby is supposed to make you know he's supposed to have that mandate of looking through the structures of rugby and making sure that the development pathways are you know as efficient as possible so you know, hopefully we see his work there <laughs> and maybe less so with you know editing and making videos but um he's <laughs> able to <laughs> he's able to 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 do that and i do think he's someone that you know has the wisdom to be able to grow to to help that growth path mm. so yeah i think the strength of rugby will always be good because we always have a good basis of players so it's then just a matter of finding the right coaches um, to 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 you know navigate that 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 player pool. So you know it, it made obviously a big difference between Erasmus and um, when Erasmus took over in 2018 and were able to to win a rugby world cup in 2019. Um, but you know there is always that 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 there's almost that trap door in South African rugby because it takes doesn't take too many losses for South African for the South African public to almost turn on its team for mm. questions to be asked and for, you know, not only sort of like questions about a particular team, but systemic issues um, to rise up again as well. And, you know, it's almost like a big sort of like cycle with South African rugby. It's, you know, we win a World Cup, everyone's hugging each other, you know, the country's brought together, you know, we have an Invictus movie or Chasing the Sun documentary and everyone's feeling good and like we, you know, set up the, 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 you know, the pathways for the future, there's promises made that we're going to do this, this, and that. And then as soon as results turn and a coach is under pressure, then, you know, it's blaming people, it's blaming coaches, it's blaming players, players don't necessarily want to play for the team anymore because of the pressure. Then, you know, there's talk about, you know, is rugby transforming in, in, in South African society, looking at the numbers of, you know, the amount of players of color on the team, you know, is it growing? Is it not growing? Why isn't it growing? Why isn't this player playing? You know, you know, and 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 then it becomes <laughs> a lot less positive than it was maybe in 2019. Mm. So you know, that's there's always that. I don't know what you want to call it, but there's always that side that South African rugby can go on to, and yeah. it, and it's always there. But you know, it is a complex sort of like history that we've had of course and it's just bringing those things together but you know because of our schooling structures we'll always have a, a good pool of talent for for our rugby players 
it's now just i think in the next 10 to 20 years hopefully the 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 the, the focus is on having a lot more academies and um places where we can identify talent from sort of rural and the informal settlements in south africa and and um outside of the traditional rugby schools that we can identify and find the next level of players then it's you know with regards to our, our franchise and, and and provincial rugby it's just you know refinding our structures after moving competitions as well you know um we do i, I personally at least I'm, I'm someone that was a massive um, super rugby fan I'll, I'll probably still watch it um in the majority and you know moving north wouldn't probably be my most ideal sort of thing, but it, it's understandable why we did it. And, you know, the, mm. the, the financial sort of um, benefits from it are, are, are something that we can't run away from. And, you know, playing in one or sort of a pretty similar time zone and all that sort of stuff has its own benefits as well. Yeah. But, you know, I think as someone that, you know, grew up with super rugby, it is something that, you know, becomes a part of your life of waking up at, you know, it's five or seven for the early games and watching sort of the, the New Zealand teams playing against each other or the Australian teams. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of people of my age that, you know, were massive fans, especially of the Reds when they won their Super Rugby title in 2011. Um, you know, a lot of like Guineas and Quade Cooper fans and all that sort of stuff, especially I think Quade has such a soft spot um, in South African hearts. So I think when he kicked that goal on Sunday, a lot of people said, you know, it could have been anyone. We're actually kind of glad it was Quade that that sort of nailed nailed that kick at the end. So, yeah, so I think moving north and we'll probably, we can talk about that as well. But yeah, mm-hmm. it will be very interesting. And I think it will develop some things in our rugby, but there is stuff that I think we had with the Sanzar relationship that we'll lose. And it is unfortunate that, you know, the countries weren't able to find common ground with each other because yes, it wasn't a perfect relationship at all, but I think we were able to, 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 to make something happen and, and to grow it. And yeah, I think our franchises are, I don't think that we're too dissimilar in strength between the South African and Australian franchises. I think we've realized now, and maybe these tests have shown that we're not too far off from the Australian situation of having, you know, maybe 30 odd players that are sort of elite international level ready mm-hmm. and the rest it's a bit of a question mark and it's a it's a matter of you know because we have so many players overseas maybe more so than Australia's not maybe having players but we have so many players overseas the question is can we sustain four franchises that can play in a sort of a multinational competition and I think the the answer is probably no we maybe should have maybe three teams I think that's maybe a reality that we also need to sort of encounter as well, but at least it does give opportunities to other young South African players to come through as well. But mm-hmm. it does mean that at least one of the teams will be uh, a whipping, uh, a laughing stock or uh, being the whipping boy in whatever competition that we're in. So, yeah, I think there is some similarities between sort of the South African and Australian rugby situation, but yeah, yeah obviously it being a national sport and having this sort of traditional basis for the past hundred or so years there is some stuff that we can rely on and, and we'll always come back to feed the system when, 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 when times are tough for us. Yeah. Just hearing you talk, I think there are a hell of a lot of parallels really. And I'm trying to think of sort of some of the more interesting ones. I think what, what stand out when you were telling me about the, I guess the pathway of the Colossi is, is, you know, we, we had 
I think we had a lot of public schools playing rugby um, back in, I guess, the 60s and 70s, and that's dropped off a lot more. Mm. And so rugby, you know, while it's played in a number of different schools, it's still very much a private school sport. And I think that's something that's been trying to be addressed. Yes, you have junior clubs that play, but, um, you know, ultimately a guy like, a player of Colossi's calibre, but by the time he's 15, 16, he, he's getting snapped up by a private school that's got, you know, the money to, to, to offer a scholarship. And so that in itself could sometimes be a positive but also for the player's development, but it can be a negative in terms of making schools rugby more interesting, you know, and, and giving more opportunities for, for communities to kind of grow their own, their own talent. Um, I think you mentioned, I'm glad you brought up um, Super Rugby and, of course, the United Rugby Championship now, a former... I guess it was formerly the pro. Was it the pro fourteen or pro sixteen? Yeah, it was. It was yeah. sixteen because of the two discarded South African teams, right. the Cheetahs and the Kings, joining. Yeah, it, watching the game. I mean, I, I watched a little bit of one of the games the other day, and I, I just, it's sort of like I, I was a bit of a criticism, a, a critic of, of Super Rugby, not because I didn't like it, just because it, of what it had become and how difficult. Mm it was to to follow it and certainly from an Australian perspective we have a we have a big focus on on our own derbies and watching our own people I, I don't think that's a positive mm-hmm. thing but that was certainly you know the the, 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 the problems with the time zone were, were a killer and of course then not winning very very many games in the end was was also not helping us but um, sort of now seeing the South African teams you know the minute they announced the schedule for the URC it suddenly hit me that well, I'm not going to, when am I going to get to see the the Sharks and the Waratahs or the Bulls and the Reds? Mm. Like, when's that ever going to happen again, if ever? Um, and sort of watching the games now, it's sort of like having a breakup with a girlfriend. And, you know, you know why it was, <laughs> you broke up, the relationship was a bit dysfunctional. And then, you know, you go out your house and you see them with another guy and you're like, oh, hang on. Should we have broken up? Was it a good thing? Maybe there were good things. Were there good things? Could we? Could we? You know, and it's <laughs> it's this sort of you know who knows nothing set in stone rugby. I think we all know that. But um, you know whether whether some sort of an end of year club championship would be the the way forward to see teams mm-hmm. like that. But God knows when in the rugby schedule that seems to be even more crowded that that could happen. Um, but it's it is interesting what you say about the player pools. And I think certainly the, 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 the player drain of, of South African players and, and presumably coaches is, is massive. And you can see that just in the names of South Africans that start popping up in, in other countries' um, uh, teams. But also, you know, the, the issue we currently have now where I think we do have, you know, a massive gap between, you know, guys who I think are some of our best best wallaby candidates and then people who are there to basically try and fill our five provincial teams and mm. and that that hasn't been addressed for years and it, and it has never been addressed because we've never had what both south africa and new zealand have which are fairly good um second tier competitions that are either professional yes. or semi-professional and i think the curry cup and you know the minor 10 or former npc have kind of been the backbone of, of creating those that 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 talent and raising that standard and unfortunately you know sydney and queensland club rugby are just not what they used to be in the 80s and i think people that are still pushing that are, are just kidding themselves to be honest and and i don't know where that where that gets fixed because 
uh, Rugby Australia don't really have any authority over those competitions or how they're run. They all they can really do is try and reprise something like the NRC and 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 build mm. that middle level. But right now they don't they don't have any money to do that. <laughs> so it's a it's a tough situation, but it is certainly mm. I think going to be the pressing situation because you know we might have a great 40, 50 players who could work with Dave Rennie over the next two, three years to deliver the cup. But then what? Like, where's that next group coming from? And, and, and where's mm. that overlap and that handover and that um, that depth getting built? Perhaps South Africa and, and New Zealand were able to, you know, layer professionalism on better, but I'm, I imagine it was still, you know, it, there were still teething problems and, and difficulties in the way in which it's been able to, um, you know, sort of being ingrained in the in the rugby system in, in South Africa. Certainly you had a lot yeah. more good provincial teams. And in, in, mm. in fact, they were sort of, I, I didn't realise at the start of Super Rugby, it was the top four Curry Cup teams that would um, go through. I thought it was a bit like the Ki- Kiwis in which they just chose four teams and then built everything underneath those teams. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, it's like that actually. It's, yeah, it's a bit uh, relatively confusing because the Curry Cup, Blue balls are separate from the balls that um, participate in in the URC or Super Rugby. But yeah, it is actually the four franchises have automatic um, entrance into um, the competitions, which I think, yeah, I personally think they should sort of open it up and have it be that the provincial teams almost qualify for it and almost build like a a Premier League soccer a, 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 a English Premier League system of you know yeah. top four teams qualify for the Champions League of sorts, and maybe I think that's where I'd be. I think in general needs to go to that. You know, <clears throat> you try and develop your domestic competitions. You know, be it you know South Africa, because yeah, you know, I think yes, while the Curry Cup is there, but now there's basically only seven, maybe eight teams that can compete or come close to competing with, um, mm. you know, sort of the, the the top teams, even without their Springboks. Um, you know, we have neglected some of the smaller rugby unions. So I don't know if it's a similar example, but let's say there was a team in, in, in Tasmania in Australia. Like we've neglected those sorts of regions that, mm. you know, could have a team and could sort of build up a composite team and be in the provincial sort of like first or second division. And now we don't have sort of like maybe a, a structure as strong or competition as strong as the NPC in New Zealand is where they have, you know, I, I, I think it's 14 teams that they have and number 14 doesn't get, you know, pasted by 200 points by number one. It's a lo- it's at least, a, you know, a 40 or 50 point thrashing. But I think if the number 14 union in South Africa was had to play the balls right now, you know, we'd have to get maybe four figures onto the scoreboard. So, <laughs> you know, it, we still need to fix those sorts of things. But yeah. so there is a, I think there is a worry that the four teams are almost going to leave the other teams and it's going to make it almost pointless to have, you know, the other smaller Curry Cup teams that are there to, to, to build up the, the structures. Do you think South African rugby fans, uh, do you think they're sort of more focused on South African derbies and, and do they have a bit of an indifference mm. to foreign teams? And I can only, again, draw the comparison in Australia where there is, you know, so much interest between Queensland and, and, and mm. New South Wales because of that history. Yet, 
you know, the, the travelling team from South Africa or even the Haguaros back in the day coming through, you know, it wouldn't draw quite such of a crowd. Audience numbers probably weren't sort of as good. And there was just over time this general indifference to Super Rugby games against um, other teams uh, for, for, from, from outside of Australia. Was there ever a similar thing with South Africa or do you think just or do South Africans have a different attitude? I think it's a little bit better than I think there's what you're describing about Australia, but it's not too far off. The, the local derbies would be the ones that would fill up stadiums and have the highest ratings on our, on our local sort of um, cable channel, cable provider, Supersport, by far. But because I think number one, if there is a great New Zealand or Australian rugby team with Super Rugby, we'd probably go and, and still have the stadium relatively full. So mm-hmm. I think now with URC, if Leinster comes to you know Cape Town or Durban or Pretoria, we'll, I think they'll be hopefully with time, and especially if they bring their you know their you know the the international players that they have, the Sextons mm-hmm. and 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 so and so forth. You know I think players um, teams um, stadiums would be close to full. But the other thing is that in South Africa, there's a very big <laughs> supporters base for. Australian, Australia and New Zealand and Australian New Zealand teams because of the history of South Africa. So mm. a lot of black and colored people would support and w- would follow New Zealand Australian rugby um, because in apartheid, you know, black and colored people weren't allowed basically to watch and, and play in the Springboks. So there's a very healthy supporters base in, in South Africa for the New Zealand teams, especially and to an extent with Australia as well. And there's South Africans that will probably put some New Zealanders under the table about their knowledge of, you know, the New Zealand rugby teams and the All Blacks and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that has been passed down because some of the structural issues in South African rugby still haven't been fixed. And, you know, there is a perception. I think it's, it was definitely a reality, I think, you know, five, 10 years ago, and it's slowly but surely changing. But there's definitely a perception that, you know, there is a, a shorter end of the stick that black and colored people in rugby get in South Africa than, you know, their white counterparts do. So it's still, you know, there's still a lot of New Zealand, a lot of the fights on Twitter are probably not necessarily between a New Zealand and a South African or Australian and a South African. It's a South African that supports Australia and a South African that supports New Zealand against a South African that supports South Africa. So yeah. that's, you know, I remember going to this, um, it was Crusades versus Stormers, I think it was 2013. Stadium was absolutely full, but you would think that the Crusaders flew people up from Christchurch to Cape Town to for this game, but it was actually just local South Africans that supported the the, the New Zealand team. And yeah. it's a very much of a sore point because it is in in sense political, but yeah, there's so much animosity between sort of the New Zealand, we call them especially from um, the Western Cape, um, the, the Cape Colored community in, in, in South Africa, a lot of them would support the All Blacks, so they call mm. the Cape Crusaders. So <laughs> there's a lot of animosity between those Cape Crusaders and South African supporting South yeah. Africans. And yeah, it would. I think those are the games where there'd be probably a little bit of extra security yeah. because it was almost like a home derby. So I think New Zealand teams and players have said before how much they love the support that they get in South Africa, and it's definitely there. Um, mm. There's probably at times, especially when South African, when the Springboks are not the best, where players like Dan Cart and Sonny Bill Williams probably have a lot more support than you know a Jean de Villiers and a Scott mm. Berger, for example. Mm. Mm. Um, but I certainly have not never heard of that 
that that dynamic it makes perfect sense like he's explaining it um but it's certainly i think if there's if there's something in australia that we suffer from it's it's probably um it's more apathy <laughs> if the wallabies are mm. losing then we just lose people we lose the the, the casual sports fan um even you know, rugby diehards have diehards have a a moment of crisis and sort of pull back from the game and take a break and go and watch Aussie rules or something else. And that's probably one of our, our, our biggest things to fight. It's just the apathy that, you know, that all mm. of a sudden we just can't sell tickets or you can't get people to watch. And even if there's games where, wow, it's a fantastic game or, you know, the Wallabies actually pull out and, 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 and produce something and, you know, it's 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 in front of 15,000 people or it's, you know, on the secondary sports channel. So, you know, different dynamic, but yeah, it's, it's, it is fascinating. And I think that will, uh, you know, it will be interesting to see what happens. And I'd, I'd like to think that there will be a, an attempts to try and bring South Africa and Australia's provincial teams to, together again, if not just for yeah. the fans, just for the fact that it would be a spectacle because you're right, you know, Leinster, I mean, I'd love to see Leinster versus Crusaders match. When will that ever yes. happen? And in what, what sort of circumstance? But it would have to be a standoff tour or something. But yeah, that would be a hell of a match. And I think those sorts of, um, you know, those sorts of matches, Stormers versus, you know, a, a Exeter or something like that, which, um, mm. you know, I think people would love to see. But um, I guess sort of, you know, the other interesting things that I was sort of thinking about before, there's been a lot of animosity in, in recent I feel like there's been a lot of animosity this week and I'm sure it's just, it's social media, but you know, it does feel as though the Springboks have managed to sort of start to become the villains again. And, and I always love it when you've got a good villain because a good villain yes. is a good contest. And and look, Australian, yeah. Australian, if I think of, think of villains, I often think of the Australian cricket team. I think we've been villains for years and probably still are, <laughs> but it's what, what each sport sort of needs. And so, you know, is that something that in South Africa you think people kind of, sort of embrace or aware of that perhaps, you know, they're, they're sort of being, um, uh, you know, viewed as by, by the, the rest of the rugby world as, as the ones that have to be taken down? It's, it's very interesting. I think especially because of the quick contrast between, I think, probably our lowest ebb um, in, 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 in our rugby in sort of 2016, 2017 um, under Alistair mm. um, to sort of the very quick success of winning a World Cup in 2019. I think I remember end of 2018, I wrote, I had this Twitter thread where I said, look, some, I think Rassi is on the right track. There's something that he's building here. We should actually not even try to compete in the 2019 World Cup. These players will be at their peak in 2023 and 2021 and 2023. Let's beat the Lions. Let's win the World Cup in 2023 because the players, the, the key players would all be in that sort of early 30s, 50 plus test caps range where, you know, they're, they're playing at their best. And obviously we won in 2019 and it was just like, oh, snap, we're, we're, we're the world champions now. We're the best team and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's been a weird dynamic because we're sort of trying to recalibrate ourselves from, from that. And <laughs> I think it's it obviously, you know, when a team, when your team's on top, you are much more li- um, likely to want to talk about that and to shout from the rooftops and tell everyone else, you know, how amazing your team is and how bad their yeah. teams are. Yeah. So I think there has been an element of that on, on social media. Um, I think they, I don't know how much it got around in Australia. I think it did though, to an extent, but there was an, an article from one of our South African journalists, um, Mark Yan, 
where yeah. he talked about sort of the wimpy wallabies and all that sort of stuff. And I I don't think all South Africans thought that way, but I do think there was an element, a sense of, you know what, we're better than every team in the world. We've just beaten the Lions. We are the world champions. Mm. So, and we beat New Zealand in New Zealand 2018. So we should expect to beat the Wallabies. So, you know, it's, I think we're trying to embrace sort of that villain or being the top team in the world and sort of enjoying and basking in the sunlight. But mm. I do think there is a, I don't know if it's a psychological thing, um, and maybe I'm completely wrong, and I'm sure if South Africans listen to this, they can definitely, they, they are more than welcome to come chat to me and correct me, but <laughs> I'd love to actually discuss this with other South Africans. But I do think there's a psychological thing with South Africa, maybe because, you know, we're a developing country or, you know, we've just come back into sort of the, the known world um, after apartheid and everything, but we do want the approval of the rest of the world in whatever that we do. So mm. be it in our sports or be it it be it with you know you know politically or with stuff that we do sort of economically or whatever the situation is, there's that thing of like you know if the developed world can sort of recognize us and almost see us beyond you know Nelson Mandela's country or whatever or you know Table Mountain or whatever like that you know we'll feel better about ourselves and back ourselves a bit more. Yes. So I think there was an element of that, especially with the Lions and all the animosity between sort of the, the British and Irish fans and, and the South African fans of, yes, I mean, you can call our rugby boring, but I mean, we're winning. Why aren't mm. you talking about the fact that we're winning and we're the top team in the world and we're the world champions? You're focusing on the fact that, you know, our game is boring and, you know, that it's, you know, all this uncompromising stuff. And, you know, when this team was on top of the world, you said nothing about this. But now when we're on top mm. of the world, you know, you're saying all these things. And I mean, I've maybe it's just how I do fandom now, I think with a little bit of years and experience and just trying to not sort of let my weekends be ruined by my team or my teams being bad. I mean, I'm an Arsenal fan for football, so I've, I have a lot of experience with this. But <laughs> I try as... <laughs> I try as much as possible to try and still stay even keeled and to realize that it is sort of just a game. So it's quite interesting when you see it from that perspective. Maybe I'm imposing my own thing because I, I I went to a school in Perth where um, our biggest rival was a, was another school that had a massive South African. Their entire team was pretty much all Saffers. <laughs> so I used to have a few feuds with them. And, of course, you know, left for weapon too, that sort of stuff. So maybe I'm just dumb. <laughs> but but for, me, but for me, I love, I, I've, I've quite enjoyed I've quite enjoyed watching the rugby, the drama of it, you know, and I don't really yeah. care. I don't, I don't have a problem with scrums and, and the, the way games are played so much as other people do. And that's probably, and that might be an issue because I'm a rugby nut and many people aren't. And we obviously need to try and address that. But, you know, I think it was, I think it was Clive Woodward that said um, back in the 2003 World Cup that if, if everyone was making a big deal of the fact that we're so, um, you know, one dimensional with, you know, playing through the Fords and Johnny Wilkinson kicking it, it's clearly working and it's clearly getting to people. And I I, yes. I, I can imagine that's probably the same here. Um, I guess the big question it'll be interesting to see is what Springboks do next. Do they mm. do they kind of reinvent themselves? Do they add another string to the bow? Uh, is this part of a, a, a slow plan to kind of gradually, um, you know, adjust and play one way for a year or two and then suddenly, you know, surprise someone in that quarter or semi-final of the world cup in in france I, I don't know it'd be fascinating to see what what happens next it's kind of i think where i was a bit uncertain about the wallabies uh, after the better slow games of 
okay, what, what are you going to sort of build your game plan on? Mm. Now, I think with the Springboks, they know what they're going to build a game plan on. Now it's just about building it. With the Australians, it seemed like they wanted to be sort of good at everything, but then were not able to hit on anything. And now they sort of got, they, they sort of went back to sort of their traditional strengths of like, okay, multi-phase rugby and, you know, sleight of hand and, you know, sort of a bit more sort of intuitive sort of rugby and, and, and you know, changing sort of from, you know, oversight to blindside and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think with the Springboks, the, the problem is sometimes that there's almost two responses when, you know, there's our rugby's under the cosh is to go sort of go more conservative and sort of more almost to the bare bones of trying to be a set piece, forward base, kicking base team. Or sometimes we try to be like, okay, we need to be like the All Blacks. And then, you know, I th- as, as, as I think Australian fans would know, trying to play like the All Blacks, especially against the All Blacks, will not um, get you much reward. So... Mm-hmm. It is just about that thing of like, look, we don't really need to do this for the approval of other, you know, fans or teams and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, ironically, um, so Clive Woodward is the one of the probably the biggest critics of of, of um, the South African rugby right now when his team played very much the same when, mm. when he was the World Cup winner in 2003. So it's about, I, I hope that the Springboks don't, sort of let, lose sight of the long-term plan. And that is to try and make sure that their team is as good as possible in 2023. Mm-hmm. And in order to be the best team in the world in 2023 and to defend a World Cup, you know, playing the way that they played on Saturday will not work because, yes, you're limiting the amount of points that a team can score against you. And that's obviously great in a, in a knockout game. But you also have to be able to take the opportunities um, at your disposal. And, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, the influence of missing someone like Chez and Colby. You know, there's a, obviously there's a great chance that Colby or whoever's not going to be at that game in 2023, be it a quarterfinal or a semifinal. So what happens then? It can't be that we only lose the game because Chez and Colby wasn't there or, you know, this didn't happen for us or we conceded a last minute penalty. It's, you know, you have to be able to, and that's, I think, what was what was great about the 2019 team. They did their basics well, and, you know, they kicked well and all that sort of stuff. But when the opportunity was on, they took it. I mean, that's mm. why in the World Cup final, we're able to score 32 points against England, because when opportunities present themselves, we're able to counterattack and score. So, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very interesting what happens. And, yeah, I think there is, I mean, our team came out, earlier today and there's definitely a sentiment of we're a bit uncertain as to why the same team is playing again what, what was this going to ask you about this because interesting I was interested in the team the South African team that was, was selected for this week and um, there's there's a, a former Wallaby Ben Darwin who you might be familiar with does a lot of work yes. in, in cohesion analytics and I think he's one of the things mm-hmm. he's often um, brought up a couple of times is that the, the one of the strengths of that South African team um, of 2019 was the fact that it had a lot of players from the Stormers, um, even though you had guys that were ex-Stormers. It, it was still a very, um, it, you know, it was a real good sort of foundation upon which to build a team. And then you look at the team that leading into that comp, but I don't think Erasmus did make too many changes in selections. Um, do you think this is a, actually a strategy by, um, you know, Jacques Nineveh now to sort mm-hmm. of 
try and just keep getting that consistency and cohesion into the team despite the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the close couple of close losses they've had? I guess so. Um, look, there hasn't been too many new players that have been introduced from the 23 to 25, I think, rugby players that we used in the, or 26 rugby players that we used in the main games in the Rugby World Cup in 2019. And I think that was, that's been deliberate. I think it's, I think it's a difficult thing, especially with the, the Springbok defensive pattern to, you know, teach, especially with the backline players. I think it's difficult to teach those backline players, you know, when to shoot up and, you know, there's a reliance on wings to basically just shoot up from their line and try to catch, you know, the outside center with, you know, ball and all. And if your defensive structure in your franchise is not like that, you know, you'll be caught out. So I think there's a lot of like calls for players like um, the Sharks fullback, Apelele Fassi, to come in and to, you know, start taking over from Billy LaRue. But, you know, the consequence of that is, you know, there's so much that LaRue does that is so helpful to the Springboks. It's not, it's not an easy just like-for-like switch and just switching out a, a fullback. So I think the Springbok rugby game plan is is based quite largely on the strengths of, of, of certain players. You know, Fafta Clack and his ability to almost act like a fourth flank and just shoot mm. up in defense and just tackle people and his box kicking. Henry Pollard being a, a good kicker and a physical flyer that can take the ball up to the line. I mean, although in the last few weeks he's been getting deeper and deeper into the pocket, you know, usually his strength and the strength of the game plan is that he's at the line and he's, in, you know, being confrontational with defenses. And Valila Rouge is coming into the line and acting like a second fly half. Mm. So, you know, when you are now looking for a fullback to succeed from LaRue and hopefully to play with Pollard in future, you're looking for a fullback that has that ability to play like a second fly half and, you know, to insert himself into the line, find a mismatch, try to get the ball to the, to the right side, you know, either through a skip pass or a bullet pass or going through the hands or taking on a defender himself. And, you know, it's a bit difficult because, you know, the young players are there, but they don't necessarily play the same way. So I think there is, it's it's almost, yeah, it's almost like a chicken and egg situation. Like the game plan, it seems like it's so based on those rugby players and them playing a certain way that when other rugby players come into those positions, they almost have to reprise that role. Mm-hmm. So, for example, with Kobus Reinach, um, he, the, the scrum half, when he plays, um, when he starts for the spring box, I mean, there is, you still see some bit of, you know, Reinhardt's ability, especially as a, as a, as a player that can run and score tries. I mean, he scored a lot of fantastic tries for, you know, Montpellier and Northampton and the Sharks, but he almost is reprising the role of after Clack. Yeah. Um, you know, it's <laughs> close to an Oscar winning performance in some cases, because, you know, he's, doing such a, a good impression of the clack that, you know, he's able to do certain things, but there's certain things that only Faf can do and we lose out on those things with our game plan. Yeah. So I think it is difficult to just, you know, play certain players in certain positions because, you know, we need those players in order for the game plan to work. And now mm-hmm. when those players aren't there, there is a bit of a, a loss that we have. So, yeah, I think there is a, there's a bit of a frustration, I think, from South African fans as to, you know, we've lost all three of these games and it seems like we're still picking the same team. I don't think the approach will change in terms of how we play, 
So what's the point? Because we're almost committing the same mistakes and we're talking about the same issues after every week. Mm. You know, I, I yeah, as, as someone now that does a weekly um, Twitter space as well, we don't want to feel the same questions about the team as well. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bit interesting that they have continued to, to go down this path with the, with the game plan. It's interesting. I feel like the Wallabies are probably going to be eventually down the same path whereby... Mm. You know, I think I think Rennie will 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 filter out the guys that just aren't quite going to be making it into that final forty top forty, and it will just be a rotation of who's available. And clearly, the plan is to, I think, sort of gradually open up the doors to the overseas selections because I think that's mm. inevitable. Karevi's probably showing that, that has to happen, and I think the the demands now on filling the filling the squad with players in Europe at the end of season tour, even though they sort of seem to be saying it's going to be a one-off, I suspect that'll be another test. So, you know, it will be interesting to see whether the Wallabies have gone. And I mean, I'm personally against that because I think it's got long-term impacts, Um, but Mm. I totally understand why there's a short-term benefit and, and for a coach and presumably a board that are always kind of having to keep an eye on the next two, three year cycle, it makes mm. perfect sense. But for me, long-term, I just think um, I think it's got issues and, and I don't know whether, you know, like the only guy who I think should probably be considered is Curtly Beal because he's, he's, he's solid. He's got a great pedigree. He's got players in the mm. team that he's currently played with and he's in France and, he's, and we, need a, we need some depth at fullback. But, um, you know, other, other than that, I'd, I'd like to see them persevere with the guys who have been around in the setup for the last couple of years and are still playing locally. But we'll see. I, I suspect I'm, <laughs> I may not be in the, the minority, but I'm certainly on, a, on an opposite side of the fence when it comes to that debate, which is sort of raging right, right. now in Australia. Yeah. I mean, we did go through a similar thing because um, in 2018, when Erasmus came um, into coaching, I think one of the things he was able to negotiate was sort of the taking down of our own um, version of the ghetto law. Mm. And I mean, the instant benefits were quite clear to see, but it does obviously incentivize um, players to not stay in South Africa. And, you know, you can see maybe in our performances in the first round of the URC where, you know, our provincial our franchise teams are a little bit off the boil that, you know, it's maybe not quite working, you know, for sort of the structures there. But I guess, that's, I think, the conversation, the honest conversation that rugby has to have or maybe make its realisation that, you know, it's a global game now and, mm. you know, we can't fight off the, the threats from sort of Europe and Japan any longer. And we have to sort of think about it like the same way that, you know, football is structured right now. Hopefully, World Rugby is able to still protect the international game and to make sure that there is a window for it and a, and a strong window and there's, you know, matches that matter and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, you know, money talks. And I think to an extent, I think Australia's maybe in a better position like economically. But with South Africa, if you're able to, I mean, it's 20 rand to the pound in, in South Africa. So it's a very easy decision for someone to make if there's an English club or a Japanese club that is, that's wanting their services and they're not quite in the Springbok picture right now. Mm. And to an extent, the coaches have shown that even if you were never part of the picture when you're, South Af- when you're in South Africa, they will see you if you are performing well in the other competitions as well. So, yeah, I, I, 
I it is a bit of a, a a concern and a frustration that we won't be able to keep our best rugby players. But hopefully, and I think that's what some of the other teams are trying to do now, and especially with the Bulls, um, they've you know they're able to buy some of the senior players and to sort of put them in the team and the senior players are able to grow sort of the younger players. And hopefully there's a meeting of those two generations that we maybe lose out on that sort of peak of your powers, 28 year old that is able to play for a team and those sort of servicemen. Um, one of my, I think, favorite Australian rugby servicemen, if I can put it like that is Tom Carter. Um, I oh, think yeah. he's probably, no, I say favorite probably ironically. I think he's probably one of the players I really dislike so much for no apparent reason. But he's someone that I think, for example, if he's able, you know, back in you know the 2000s and 2010s, he stays at the Waratahs for 10 plus years. Yeah. And now there's so little chance of a player doing that right now. So mm. you don't have that 28-year-old range. You probably have a lot of players in that 20 to 25 range who are still sort of, breaking into rugby and you have players in that 32 plus a range that are, you know, senior citizens and are able to, to grow them. So I guess with Australia as well, the, the, the emphasis and the question is trying to build, bring back, you know, the Quades and the Curtly Beals and the Scott Higginbotham's for them to, you know, spend sort of the sunset of their careers in the Australian rugby franchises and to bolster sort of the experience in those teams. I mean, mm. The, the, the concerning thing, for example, the Waratahs um, in this year's and their Trans-Tasman and the Super Rugby AU was that, especially without Hooper, there were players that basically in the squad that cumulatively had probably the same number of caps that Michael Hooper had. So there was no guidance for them to be able to try and get some sort of learning from, you know, these losses that they were taking. So, yeah, yeah I guess it's a two-edged thing. And yes, I think it isn't good sort of long-term for your franchises, but maybe we just need to start thinking about sort of how we structure these franchises and these provincial teams differently. Like New Zealand, I think inevitably will also get to a, a place where they can't use the, the black rugby jersey anymore as a, as a thing to keep their best players in, in, in their country. And we'll also have to pick from players overseas. Yeah. So it's now a matter of hopefully with the help of world rugby, which um, I'm very pessimistic about, but with well, hopefully there's um, the, the the powers that be can make the decisions to protect the international rugby game, to protect um, you know international windows, so that you know the the Biola indoor isn't you know the Champions Cup or some club World Cup, but it's still international rugby and, and players are still you know focused on on doing that. But yeah, I mean you can see the massive difference that. The senior players have made to the Australian team, I think, in, in a few short weeks. So I I totally get where you're coming from. And I am a little bit worried for, you know, for example, with someone like Darcy Swain, he's not going to get as many opportunities if Arnold and Skelton are playing now in the mm. November tour. But on the other hand, it's good for him to learn because we saw with Lolisio, for example, maybe that was the, you know, a bit of an extreme example, but with Lolisio, if you are getting these opportunities to play, that's good. But if you're constantly getting beaten, that's probably not great for your confidence. And it's maybe better that you have a Quaid or a James O'Connor that you can learn from and grow from as well. And you do play maybe the odd game and hopefully then win your place in the team to usurp the experienced players in that team. So I guess it's a balance that I think we're both as African Australia trying to figure out right now. When I was talking to someone about the 
the player drain and I said, yeah, but, you know, there are countries like South Africa that have been going going through this a long time before us and an entire bunch of countries in the Pacific Islands that have only known mm. player drains. So, you know, <laughs> we're going through it now and feeling like it's tough, but, you know, we put it in perspective. This has been a... This is, this is what's probably held some countries back for, from day dot and, and, and who knows, mm. maybe maybe that we're, we're on a, on the cusp of change. Um, look, I, I, I probably better wrap it up, but I want to... Um, Oh God, thank you for the for the moment. It's been fascinating. As I said, it's one of those things. I, I have a few South African mates who I chat about with rugby, but I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought that they're um, as knowledgeable as like someone like yourself is. So it's it's, it's fascinating because it is a <laughs> so to, to me having been there as I said a couple of times. You know that wow, you're in a you're in a rugby country, and you know growing up in Australia and growing up in Perth where I did, it was rugby. You know, it was probably fourth after all the other winter codes and and mm. you know you, it was always a bit of a niche so when I moved to Sydney I found it fascinating because all of a sudden I'm talking to people and going to games where there's crowds and then you know you go to that next level of going to New Zealand traveling to New Zealand or South Africa and then you see an entire <laughs> country that embraces the game it's always interesting so it, it is very good getting that perspective and as I said, I'm, 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 I think, I think rugby, international rugby, at least, is as, as interesting as it's been for a while now. And I think it'll be fascinating to see what what happens at the in the spring tours or the autumn tours, as they as they say up in London. Yeah, I think. Thank you so much, first of all, for the compliment. Um, yeah, I. <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very <laughs> humble that you think that. Um, I, I think you just need better friends, maybe. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it is. It's a yeah, it's a very interesting place. I think where I think both our countries are at, and you know, like I said in that article that I mentioned at the start, there is a lot that I can sort of see from the Wallabies that is sort of that start of the the 2018 when the Rassi Rasmus era started where, you know, you're identifying the players that will hopefully take you to, you know, the World Cup. And I, I'm assuming that the Lions tour in 2025 is, I think, almost the first focus. And then once it seems like more when than if you guys are, are confirmed as hosts of the 2027 Rugby World Cup, that's when, you know, those players should be peaking. So yeah. unless, it's super exciting. Russia, Russia manages to snaffle it from yeah. us. Yeah, I think. <laughs> You think it's you think you could be pretty safe, but you never know. Yeah, but yeah. So hopefully, um, in, the, in that case, it is it is happening in Australia. But yeah, I would, I would be yeah, I'd be very excited if I was a, an Australian rugby fan right now because there's two massive rugby events that are happening, and you have a, a generation of players that have you know gone almost all the way in the under twenty rugby World Cup and have you know, proven themselves locally and are starting to sort of build up that that's that reputation um over like in, in beating, you know, the Springboks and the French and all that sort of stuff as well. So yeah, I think, you know, the I'm s i am think there's a lot of South African rugby fans that are big and, and, and excited about, you know, Jordan Pattaya, Harry Wilson, Angus Bell. Angus Bell, I think, got a lot of respect from South Africans for, you know, what he did in the scrums and in the in the test against the Springboks as well, so you know there's a lot of I think to look forward to for that, and <clears throat> I think with the Springboks, I I do hope that you know this time at the top isn't short lived, and that we don't sort of revert back to sort of the type that we've been I think most of the last twenty five to thirty years, where 
you know, apart from sort of a euro tube at the top, we are sort of in that three, four, five range in the world. And we're sort of, we think we're better. It's, I think that's the funny thing about South African Australia is, you know, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of banter, I think, about, you know, Australian rugby and South African rugby. And like South Africans would say, look, the Australian super rugby games are the most boring games. And we go out and we, you know, do our, our morning shopping when it's the Australian games are on. And the Australian fans are like, we don't even watch your games and all that sort of stuff. But I think there's a lot of similarities between the two countries. And I think that's why with most of the tests since 1996, it's been pretty evenly matched in those games, you know the worst Australian team can beat the best African team and vice versa. So I think it's, it's, you know, I think both of, both, both, both of us are trying to figure that out. I think South is just a bit more obviously fortunate in the fact that we have a bigger player resource that we can call upon and, you know, good coaching that, you know, can sort of meet up, you know, in certain years so that we can win rugby world cups. But I mean, Australia was pretty close to a world cup in, 2015 to an extent and you know 2011 and um in 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 2003 they probably should have had one then taken one away from the english so it's i don't think they you know australians have been that far apart it's yeah just making sure that you build up that next generation and perhaps it's just been a waste of a not a waste i think that's a bit harsh but you know not making the best out of you know the likes of pocock and bill and Mm. and sort of that previous generation of the 2010s and i think that's been basically because you know the structures haven't produced a good tight five (laughs) just to be able to have some parity in 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 the world so now you have taniela tupo and angus bell Hopefully that's sort of the foundation you can build upon to have these teams that are going to be exciting and top rugby teams in 2023 and 2027. Mm. So my very early and probably wrong prediction is that the World Cup final in Sydney um, in 2027 is between Australia and France because they those are the two teams that look like they're building for you know the future and will be the teams of the later parts of the 2020s. So... I still hope that's the case, but yeah, obviously as a South African fan, I do hope the South Africans are, are part of that 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 mix as well. I, I don't think you're you're out of line, mate, saying that that we've had we've had some of the world's best players and we still haven't been able to show much for it. And I think Pocock is a great example. I thought Quade Cooper was also another example of a player who is probably a talent that didn't quite get fully appreciated, but mate, his mm. script, his 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 story is not has not ended yet. So yeah. Um, I hope you're right about the the the, the, the France Australia final. I'm, I'm still worrying about that first one of the pool games against Fiji, who I just think are going to be an absolute <laughs> handful. And and with two years of the the draw being in in, in Super Rugby Pacific, I think yeah, gonna be a real, I true. think they're going to be a real handful in that pool for us in Wales. No, that's very true. And <laughs> yeah, I it's I think that's a good thing. Maybe not necessarily for Australia and. I mean, for example, like I think you also, well, not in the in the World Cup, but you're facing Japan quite soon, and you know, it's it's one of those situations where I think we we faced it, of course, when we lost to them in the 2015 World Cup, where it's fantastic for the game for Japan or for those sort of countries to beat you, but you don't want to be the team that they beat as well. So, if we'd played Japan in that World Cup, we would have lost. I, I don't think yeah. that's a to a stretch and and at the moment who knows if japan have had that if they've still got that same momentum um or not uh, and we're obviously still 
in, in the position we are. So it will be a fascinating game. Um, certainly would, would not be great if we lost. But again, mm. if you do lose and you lose to a team like Japan or a Fiji, you know, broadly speaking, it's good for the game because we, we need more mm. than four or five countries vying for that, you know, quarterfinal or semifinal finish every mm. every four years. But, mate, look, thanks very much, mate. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll continue to uh, look forward to uh, what Rugby Bits. Can't wait to the podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Matt. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, thank you so much for the platform also just to promote Rugby Bits as well. Um, yeah, we're hoping that we can sort of just, yeah, just join the rugby family of podcasts and just give another thing for rugby fans to listen to as well. And I'm sure we'll be um, messaging you and inviting you over to one of our podcasts pretty soon as well. Can't wait. We'll be there. Okay. Thank you so much. This is the Gold Digger podcast series, a spin-off from the new feature documentary film, Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host, Matt Durrant. Music is by Makeup and Vanity Set, sourced from musicbed.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com, Gold Digger Rugby. And follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.